continuing our series this morning on the book of Jonah. So we are in chapter 3. So we'll be reading the first 10 verses in Jonah 3. So I invite you to follow along in your own Bible or the words also written on the screen. So this is from Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it, the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the words of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. The Ninevites believed God. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the kings and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Demikianlah sabda Tuhan. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Eric. All right, let's take a look together at this word from God that comes to Jonah. And the title for the message today is No More Running from God. What I think is amazing, Jonah's amazing for a lot of reasons to me, but it's a book that is so clearly written for absolutely every person in this room. It doesn't matter who you are. Categorically, this book is for you. And the reason is because Jonah... As he brings God's word, his charge is to bring it to a people who don't believe. So if this morning, for example, you don't believe in God, you're not convinced on any, any level or, or in some, some level that God is who he says he is, this book is actually written for you. I mean, Jonah's bringing a message to a group of people who don't believe in God, and he's presuming, he's saying, actually, it does apply to you. 
And if you're this morning somebody who says, yeah, I do believe in God, perhaps you're even a card-carrying Christian, and you could show me this morning, well, this book is absolutely for you too, because this is about a servant of God who says, I'm a prophet, I'm kind of a model Christian, as it were, and he's not looking very much like it. In fact, in this book, we see a lot of the people you would call sinners acting like saints, and the people who are supposed to be saints acting like sinners, And God says, this is for everybody. If you're a sinner or a saint this morning, this book is for you. And especially, it seems, this chapter as well. Jonah saw others as outsiders, as sinners, but he failed to see himself as one as well. So when he got this task, as we saw earlier, to proclaim judgment that might lead to mercy to his enemies, he ran in the opposite direction And he failed to obey. And you know what happened next? He was swallowed whole by a great fish. He experienced darkness. and It's a near-death experience. All he can see is darkness around him. He feels like he's dying. And he finally turns to God in prayer. That was last week in Jonah 2. And Jonah finally sees, look, I have my own agenda in life. I need to put that aside. And then God caused the fish to regurgitate him, as we heard last week. And he's smelly, but he's free. And now we're in chapter 3, which Eric just read. And the first thing that jumps out is the grace of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God gives second chances. And he truly is the God of second chances, and third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and seventh. I could go on and on and on. This is just who God is. Some of you have heard me tell the story before of a time when I was in India. We thought we were going to speak to a small group of ladies at a Christian Bible study, Um, and instead we ended up at a, a prison with lots of pomp and circumstance. There was a band that was greeting us outside, and it was a huge issue. We we walked past a bunch of people, gathered into a room much bigger than this one, with only a few small exits, and everybody was sitting down listening. I was feeling quite sick at the time, wasn't sure I was going to be able even to make it in, but prayed, Lord, have mercy, especially because they said, you're going to be speaking to this group of prisoners. And those who were gathered there most of them being Hindu, some Muslim as well, almost guaranteed not a single person who professed the name of Christ with very few exits. And I was told, you're going to talk about the gospel to these people. And I was praying, Lord, I don't know what to do or what to say. And what came to me in that moment of desperation was the message of Jonah, that God gives second chances even to people who have failed And here in Jonah as well, people who don't call on the name of God. Our big failures in life don't disqualify us for God's grace. They don't disqualify us for forgiveness. They don't disqualify us for new starts. Actually, they are the very backdrop for the display of his compassion. Think about that. This is the story of the Bible. People are messed up. And God uses messed up people and all their mistakes 
as the very backdrop for showing his compassion and working out what he desires. Back in Genesis 50, 20, in this whole story of Joseph, God says, you, know, you intended it for, for evil. You intended something for harm, but I used it for good to accomplish what is being done. The saving of many. So even our failures, they're the canvas on which he can draw a stunning display of redemption. We don't even have to go any farther in this book. I could probably close it and go home right now. If you get, get this and latch on to it, do you believe that God gives second chances? Do you believe that he does not waste a single thing? Do you believe that he forgives fully and freely? Do you believe he can make something beautiful out of the broken mess that you have created? Out of the dust? We have a friend, I'm, I'm sure some of you know of her, who has a counseling ministry that is named after the Japanese art of taking broken pieces of pottery and reassembling them for something more beautiful. Um, it's called Kintsukuroi, and some of you are probably familiar with this, but her counseling ministry is kind of based on this premise. And here's a picture of what that looks like. It means to repair with gold. It's the art of repairing pottery with gold or silver lacquer and understanding that the piece is more beautiful for having been broken. You can look at more examples of that and you get the idea. You feel like a broken mess today? that you're beyond the redemption of God, but no, in Christ, that brokenness becomes the very, the very part where God recreates something more beautiful. Well, we believe that God can change and use us no matter what. And Jonah is proof positive that the answer is yes. And now in this book, in Jonah, that belief, the fact that yes, I do believe, it's evidenced by Jonah in confession and repentance. We saw that last week in Jonah chapter 2. And ultimately here, as we see, it comes out in obedience. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. That's his grace. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. What does Jonah do? Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. Back in chapter 1, the same thing came. Go to Jonah, the great city, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And in verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord. But now, he's running to God instead of running from God. He's willing to accept this mission that has come before him. So he says, yeah, okay. I'm on board, I'll do it. But as we'll see in chapter 4, that obedience sometimes can, is only skin deep. It's not really gotten down to the heart level. And here's the thing about the Bible. It's not just interested in external obedience. God does not ultimately care about external obedience. Because you can be obedient and far from God. And that was the problem with the main religious leaders of Jesus' time. They look good on the outside, but their hearts were far from God. They're just whitewashed tombs. What God's really after is your heart. Now, if he gets your heart, the obedience will come. But Jonah was obedient. 
And, and it seems like he's making progress, but in chapter 4, we'll see, it didn't go very deep. So not only is God giving him a second chance, but he's working on his heart. He's chiseling away at the very hardness of heart that Jonah is proclaiming to the Ninevites is unacceptable. When you realize that God wants you to do the same thing that you failed at, what heart attitude do you have? Because I don't know if you've been like this, if you're somebody who's a churchgoer and you really want to honor God and you fail in something and you say, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And then you do it again. And then you do it again and again. And what, what, what heart attitude when God comes to you and says, be obedient in this area. <clears throat> and you failed again and again. What's underneath that? I, I asked this question because I came across uh, this, this book just this week. And some of you know I was in Memphis for our General Assembly, all the PCA pastors getting together. And I came across this great resource uh, on Jonah. I'm like, i got to get that because I'm preaching on Jonah. And was looking at this chapter in the section and the, the man who wrote this, whose name I'll surely mispronounce, this would be a great wordle thing because there aren't very many uh, consonants, it's mostly vowels, I-A-I-N, Ian, Ian, <laughs> D-U-G-U-I-D, do good, do guid, I don't know, um, but he, he, he asks this very question, he says, when you realize God again wants you to do the thing that you failed at. What hard attitudes do you have? So trying to get down a little bit deeper. And here's just a, a few of them. Um, resentment, for example. And he goes on to say, again, this isn't fair. Fear. And the idea is one way or another, this will turn out badly. Apathy. I don't care what God says, nor do I care about others, really. Stubbornness. Um, Lord, that's not how I'm gifted. <laughs> Defeat. Why should I even bother this time? And self-condemnation. I feel like scum already. How many of us wrestle with self-loathing? It's just a divine setup for me to fail again. That's a hard attitude. And God doesn't want you to remain there. That's, that's a symptom of unbelief. Uh, or... There are some positives, too, and I've just been selective. It's not everything. You could respond, perhaps, underneath when God comes to you again in an area where you failed with contentment, which thinks one way or another, this will turn out for my good. Or dependence. I'll do this with God, not as a performance for God. Or prayerfulness. I really need your help over here, Lord. <laughs> Maybe humility. I still have much to learn. Worship. God is so beyond me. Or faith. God isn't just the Father. He's my Father. He's bringing me closer to himself. As he comes to me in an area where I failed again, and he says, be obedient. Different attitudes of the heart underneath the surface that are driving us toward a certain behavior. And faith, where we ended, is really the opposite of unbelief. And the symptoms of unbelief are thoughts like this. God doesn't give second chances. My life is a waste. There is no forgiveness for me. There's no grace for me when I mess up. I can't have a new start. I don't deserve a new start. God can't make anything beautiful out of the mess I've created. 
My shame and my failure is bigger than God's forgiveness. I won't learn from my mistakes. I will live only with resentment, fear, apathy, stubbornness, defeat, self-condemnation. I will not trust Christ's work on my behalf, but will work to make things right in my own strength. Or perhaps, my personal happiness means more than God's glory. Not thy will be done, Lord, but mine. What if we change the words to some of those things? And we are praying the Lord's Prayer. Not your will be done, Lord, but my will be done. That's very honest. But it's also a symptom of unbelief. I won't admit my fault. I won't embrace it. I won't feel the weight of conviction, the heaviness of sin. And I will not let it lead me to the hope of the gospel. I will not drink deeply from the well of forgiveness. I will not take the pathway of belief and obedience. At least not obedience motivated by a desire to honor God and live out a grace-filled life, but instead an obedience that looks good to others and covers up the shame that I know. How powerful is the pathway of unbelief? It's the pathway that God is leading Jonah away from. And the pathway that he's using Jonah as a mouthpiece to call the Ninevites away from. And the call to respond to God can be quiet or it can be very, very loud. Jonah received his wake-up call in the belly of the whale. And the Ninevites now receive it with the proclamation of a message of judgment. So God's getting to their heart through the proclaimed word and through the threat of being overturned. And the message in these next verses comes to the Ninevites with a hammer. Verse 4, Jonah began going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In the Hebrew, it's just five words. Something like, you are in deep trouble. <laughs> That's pretty much what he's saying. To them. We don't have all of the message. We, we, maybe he was saying more than that, but we know this is the stuff that was written down for us to remember. It sounds a little bit like a person on the corner yelling out on a bullhorn. I've seen, I've seen this person on the corner of Tylersville and Cox. I've seen him with the bullhorn. You're all dying, go to hell, unless you repent and perish. And what's interesting is, Jonah doesn't even appear to say that part. He just says, you're in trouble. You're in trouble as he goes into this great city. I got a phone call one Saturday at our previous church um, from Walter, the, the senior pastor. And his voice would go out every now and then. And it happened to be Saturday, like maybe mid-morning. He finally realized he just can't speak on Sunday morning. And I was the number two guy. So he calls me and he says, Mark, I need you to give the message for me. This is probably before texting. Uh, and uh, I said, uh, okay. And I knew sort of where we were. We were in Romans 1, chapter eight, uh, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Okay? I had 24 hours to prepare for that one, which was nice because I, I could talk about how I only had 24 hours to prepare for it. And so here it was, I get to talk about the wrath of God being revealed. And, and that's for some 
Some people may be there like, yes, the wrath of God against the world. See, we're all a bunch of church people. <laughs> like, yeah, the world, the culture. <laughs> and even that's a little intimidating for me. I'd rather talk about God's love, wouldn't you? You can't know God's love unless you know his wrath has been met in full. It's been paid for by Christ. That's the greatest demonstration of love of all. You deserve God's wrath, but he poured it out on his son instead. But it is a real wrath. And you will bear the judgment if there's not one to bear it for you. And you can't bear it. Now that message in a church context maybe sounds okay, a little like, eh. I prefer the love of God. But what about if you go to a, a culture like this, a place where he's going, the Ninevites, a city engaged in all kinds of evil practices, crass idolatry, and licentiousness, child sacrifice, and gruesome practices, as it's been recorded, that they would take their enemies and they would skin them alive. Some people say they would take that skin and make a little seat out of it to display the shame and the hideousness. These are the people that deserve God's wrath, don't they? Yeah, they do, just like we do. It was a culture that ultimately proclaimed, no one can judge me, I can do whatever I want without consequence. Jonah has a message to those people. And he's going to them and he says, God will judge you Peeps. That's what he says. Five words. You are in trouble. He didn't even appear to give an alternative. You know, turn, turn to God or perish. There's an alternative. Turn to God or die. He just says, you're in trouble. It, 40 more days, it's going to be overturned. Rather... God's Holy Spirit works in their hearts to feel the weight of conviction. And quite amazingly, the Ninevites believe God. They believe God. They proclaim a fast. They turn from their evil ways. Those are all genuine signs of turning to God, not running away from Him any longer. The, the biblical term for this is repentance. You're no longer running from God, but rather... You're running to him. And you do that by admitting sin and endeavoring to walk in his way. That's what repentance is. I am not heading in this direction anymore. I'm turning in a completely different way. That's what Jonah did. You see, it's not just the Ninevites who needed repentance, but Jonah. He was headed in one direction. Okay, I'm going to church on Sunday. But his heart was headed in a completely opposite way. God says, you need to turn back to me. And I'm going to use you to proclaim to a group of people who don't actually deserve it. Because if they turn, they'll know my compassion. But isn't that you also, Jonah? You need to turn. No longer run away from me, but rather running to me. Admit your sin. Endeavor to walk in my ways. And Jonah got that. He did that in the belly of the fish. But in chapter 4, he, he steps back again. See, we need this cycle of repentance over and over and over. It's why Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. Turning back to God again 
And again, now these people were very far from God, and the culture was as well, and they had to be held accountable. But like we said in chapter 1, they thought they were just accountable to their local God. So God shows that he's the God of all of the earth, even of these people. If they don't even believe in him, it doesn't matter. It doesn't cease to be true. They will be held accountable to him, the creator of everybody and everything. You can't hide. You can't really run from God. And you are held accountable to him. This incredible response is not just in one segment of society. It goes right up to the king. And we see the most powerful ruler in their political structure sit down in the dust, in humility, in despondency. Even the animals bear the marks of mourning and petition. Jonah is the world's most remarkable, unwilling evangelist. (laughs) Everywhere he goes, people respond. And he doesn't even want to do it. Got the surly sailors in chapter 1, now the nasty Ninevites here in chapter 3. And I suppose this shows us the power to change hearts does not exist in the preacher alone. It doesn't exist in the person carrying the message. It's the one who uses that message for his own purposes. We have no power in and of ourselves. I came across this quote some time ago. It's not great men who change the world, but weak men in the hands of a great God. That's, God's in the business of changing hearts. We have a responsibility we proclaim, but your proclamation of itself is of no avail unless God's spirit comes and does something in the midst of that. I mean, we already know this, don't we? We went through the book of 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 2. Paul himself understood this. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. If your faith is based on something other than God's Spirit and His power, it's a faith that's very weak. It's why it's sad when we see people fall from grace, as it were, leaders in the Christian church, and you say, I'm rejecting Christ now. It can't be real. But that person's a sheep too. I am as well, prone to wander. Your faith cannot be based on me, please. Not on my performance. I want to be a man of integrity. I want to live and fight hard to the very end. That's my goal. But I understand that if, that if I'm not humble, if I'm not constantly relying on God, I could fall. Be careful. You know, the temptations that seize you, they're, they're not uncommon to everybody. And Christ is faithful. He, did, he gives you a way out. But Jonah, I mean, come on. He was a prophet of God. And he, he gets swallowed by a fish. You'd think that he would never go down the same path. And we see him in chapter 4 doing the same thing. Your faith cannot rest on me, but rather on God's spirit and his power and the message that he is using to apply to your heart. Unless the spirit quickens your heart, you will not respond, or if you do, it will not last. You know, in Jesus' days, they said, give us the sign of Jonah. Christ came. He said, I'm the son of God. I'm I'm the perfect, obedient son. Trust in me. Believe in me. They said, hmm, give us some proof. 
Give us a sign of Jonah. He said, okay, I'll give it to you. In three, three days, this place will be torn down and rise again. And they think he's talking about a building or something. He says, it's my body. I will raise from the dead. And he does. He raises from the dead. And he proves that he is who he says he is. And some people still yawn at that. It's not proof that's needed. You want the sign of Jonah? Already given in Christ. You don't need more proof. You need to believe. That's what you need. You need to pray the Spirit makes your dead heart alive. That, you, that your apathetic heart be set on fire for the things of God. That God's Spirit, the Spirit of fire, fills you. So that what you're doing in your obedience isn't coming from just raw grit, American individualism, we can do it. Give me some beef jerky to chew on right after I've had my wisdom teeth removed. No, it's foolishness. Your own agenda must be laid down for God's. And only God's spirit can bring you to the point where that's the case. See, the, he's showing Jonah that again by sending him into a fish where he can't, he can't do anything anymore except for call to God and say, God, save me. And he does. Now, this whole scene that's unfolding may not come across as very gracious. It's a message of judgment. But the message of judgment is always one of grace because it provides an opportunity for a right response before it's too late. Forty days. There is a time coming down the road. And if you don't turn, it's not going to go well. And so in verse 10, we see that when God saw what they did, these visible responses to his message, these responses of repentance that were not just words but also actions as well. We read in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring about them the destruction that he threatened. There is an awareness that our sin is real, that we're held accountable to God for it, but also that we can turn from our selfish ways and find the compassion of God and no longer live under his judgment, but instead have our lives guided by the assurance that he is our loving father. See, that's what Christ did. He knows God's full judgment, full wrath, so that we will never have to. He said to his father in pure obedience, not my will be done, but yours. And if we trust in his work alone, if we believe that God raised him from the dead, the sign of Jonah, we're assured that we will be saved. Saved for what reason? For God's glory, for our own good, that we will no longer be running from God, but toward him in all that we do. That's what the gospel is. That's, that's why we're chasing hard after God, but that's also why our hearts are shifty, like a greased pig sometimes. And we need, we need somebody to come in and lasso them. That's what God's spirit does. When we say, Lord, help me in my unbelief, we, we sing about it. God, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That's the posture of repentance that comes not just to the Ninevites, but to you who profess faith in Christ. 
I was reading a, an, another book that I circled back around to by Eugene Peterson, Under the Unpredictable Plant. And it's really looking at a call to, to pastors through the lens of the, the book of Jonah, but it's, it's certainly broader than that as well. Uh, he's writing in particular about Jonah coming into the, the city, and he, he's, he's, he's reflecting on um, the meaning behind 40 days, and somehow we see that all throughout scriptures. Uh, just to, to read a little part of what he says when Jonah goes in there and begins talking to them. It says, Jonah called into question their future. He introduced eschatology into their now-oriented religion, their security-obsessed present. Eschatology is the study of last things. And he says he's coming to that culture who's just obsessed with now. And he's starting to say, but what about down the road? What about what's coming next? Is there anything you have to be held accountable for? And he's saying, yeah, there is. He's getting into the shift and think, what are the consequences of everything that we're doing? For people who are only thinking about now, what's in it for me now? What's pleasurable for me now? He says, you need to think about what's to come. Forty is a biblical word that has hope at its core. Forty days is a period of, for testing the reality of one's life, examining it for truth, for authenticity. So, so Eugene Peterson in this book here is saying, look, you're consumed with now. You need to think about what's coming. Forty days, and all throughout the Bible, it's kind of a time period to do a gut check and say, am I really living life the way that I'm supposed to be living? He talks about a few of these. The 40 days in Noah's Ark. 40 days, Noah's Ark, was a purgation, cleansing centuries of moral pollution, washing away generations of unreflective gratification. The 40 years in the wilderness was training to live in, into the promises of God, to live by faith in the risky, high-promised land of blessing. The 40 days of Elijah on the run brought him out of the dangerous illusions emanating from Jezebel's court to the place of revelation. The 40 days of Jesus' temptations was a probing of motive and intent, a clarification of the ways in which God worked salvation in contrast to the ways in which religious idolatry seduces us away from God, away from faith. The 40 days of Jesus' resurrection appearances provided verification for the new reality that was now to characterize life in God's kingdom. And then he goes on to say, if the 40 days does its proper work, life begins in a new way. If the 40 is ignored, life is destroyed. In Nineveh, the 40 did its proper work. The people heard the message, not as prediction of doom, but as proclamation of hope. Religious Nineveh was doomed, but another way of life was possible, a way of faith in God. Change was possible. They didn't have to live the way they did. They could live for God, before God, in response to God. So in a sense, we're all called, because we're in this text together, to sort of a 40-day trial period now to say, where are we with, with God? And if you put it in its proper place, he's suggesting, that, that is the place it's supposed to be. It's driving us to a point where we're in dependence on God in faith. There are different ways to live lives. Of course, you choose, as it were. But that word that was given to them is given to all of us, too. 
at the end of that 40-day trial period, if you're standing in your own strength, you won't survive. I don't care who you are, how righteous you seem, how awesome you feel like you are today. There is no hope except in the person of Christ. He was the only truly obedient one. He was Jonah giving the message, but he was the one who was running to God, never running from him. And that's the journey that we're on as a community. What is the proper placement? How are we living out our lives with this idea of running to God and, and never running away from him again? What does that look like as a husband, as a daughter, as an employee, as a citizen? Not just of earth, but of the kingdom of God. That's the opportunity that's before us. And that same message I gave you, you're not sitting in an Indian prison today. You're here. But we're all prisoners in our heart until God sets us free in Christ. That's just the reality. And here, here's what it is. It's a simple, okay, Lord, I surrender. Please don't wait until you're thrown into the belly of a whale, until seaweed wraps around you. The message is right here for the taking. Not with wise and persuasive words, but hopefully a demonstration of the Spirit's power so your faith can rest in God's power. That's the power that I want to live out my life in weakness, in a hard attitude that doesn't say I'm bitter and angry and hostile, but I'm, I'm something to be molded by God. I've got mess and brokenness, and he's making something beautiful out of it. If you feel like you're not worthy today, that's the best place you can be. That's where it starts. Heart surrender to God. Father, I do pray this morning that you would take all of us, each one of us. The Bible says we are all sinners. And the only reason we can be saved or made right with God is because of the grace that you have offered us in Christ. And that message apparently isn't just for somebody today who says, I don't believe, but also for those who say they do. Because that's what came to Jonah. When he was preaching, it was to his own heart. And God is saying, Jonah, take stock. And don't let this opportunity pass. Make proper use of the time that has been given. Because when we do that, humility and surrender and faith and trust then we get to see what you are at work. And sometimes it may not be as dramatic as what happens in Jonah's life, but we trust and know that even the very basic mundane things of life have value. We know that from the Lord's Prayer, that when we take our daily bread, we see it as something given to, you by, uh, given to us by you. Something so basic and so simple. So for those who are needed today and recognize it, would you come and take those of us who know our brokenness and make us whole? who are desperately needing the kind of healing we sang about earlier, not just physical, but the healing of the soul and make something beautiful out of our mess. And for those of us who think everything's okay, would you reveal to us it's not? Would you be as gentle as possible but as forceful as necessary at showing us our great need for the God who created us and the pathway that he's offered for us to live life to the full? in the person of Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.